Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. Shell Israel is the author of Twitterville, a book about how and why social media is transforming the way people and organizations communicate and what businesses, government agencies, and nonprofits should do about it. The last time he was on this podcast was in 2006 in a joint interview with Robert Scoble, uh, who he co-authored the book Naked Conversations with, and which is known in many circles as the Blogger's Bible. I am thrilled to have him with me on this podcast. I'm thrilled to be here, Eric. It's good to be back. Shell, you did such a good job articulating the business case for social media engagement. I was actually unable to read Twitterville without a highlighter in hand. Um, I actually compiled my notes in the margins and the highlighted passages into a seven-page document, much of which I intend to try and work into the uh, social media boot camp that I teach for PRSA. Um, if you're if you're okay with it, I could publish those notes as a Google Doc and put a link in the show notes. I'd be flattered if you did. I, I'm I'm really excited to talk to you about the book um, uh, and, and explore some questions I had when I read it. But before but before we drill down into specifics, um, tell us if you would a little bit about how you feel about the book. I mean, do you feel as though you achieved what you wanted to achieve with it? <laughs> You know, I spent a lot of years being in the tech industry where there was a, a common uh, a phrase, which is never let a developer decide when a piece of software is done because he will never finish. So I am pretty proud of the book, um, but like most writers I know, the day I finished it, uh, I turned around and said, oh my God, I should have. In my case, the day the book got locked up was June 12th uh, of 2009, uh, and I ended with this, um, what I thought was a visionary uh, call that someday uh, Twitter would allow people to work around their governments and achieve world peace. And on June 12th, an election was held in Iran where Twitter would play this enormous role, but my book was locked up. So my biggest regret was I didn't have another week to just cover that one incident. Um, to me, Shell, the title sells the book a little short. I mean, yes, it does cover everything Twitter, but it's really much more than that. And I, I think you can apply the knowledge you glean from so many others to all aspects of social media communications. And I wonder, in retrospect, if you think that the title was a little too narrow. Well, I'm writing about something that, that most people have to uh, uh, dole out in 140 character capsules. So, you know, it took about 14, ca uh, 14 uh, counts right there on Twitterville. Um, I, I'm kind of proud of simple titles. Um, Naked Conversations had two words. The e-book I did for Dow Jones, uh, uh, the Conversational Corporation had three, so I thought getting it down to one was pretty good. And I thought that it captured one of the uh, key points of the book that 
Twitter is really kind of like a small town, and that, that's a lot to do with its charm, and that's a lot to do with trust, and it's a lot to do with, with how business actually takes place. So I'm, I'm pretty proud of the title. Sorry, sorry let's, if you're not. Let's let's talk about the book for a second, and I want to talk about about, about uh, just for a second. I, I have all day to talk about the book, Eric. Good. Well, I'm <laughs> excited about that because I got a bunch of things I, I do want to talk to you about, and I want to start by reading this passage from uh, Why Comcast Cares, which is one of the chapters of the book. Um, and you're you're writing about uh, Frank Eliason and his uh, team that does uh, the uh, customer service via Twitter for Comcast. And uh, here's the quote. Eliason would later say he chose Twitter over other social media platforms because that's where the Comcast customers are. It started just when the YouTube clip of that sleeping repair guy was reaching an apex of popularity. But Eliason wisely ignored all that. He wasn't there to defend what happened, nor was he there to talk about how great Comcast was or hoped to be. Instead, Eliason made it clear he was on Twitter to solve customer problems. He addressed tweeting, cust- tweeting Comcast customers the same way a call service center person does it, one at a time. He never made grandiose claims. He never eschewed marketing re- rhetoric. He just asked what was wrong with the problem and tried to fix it. And, um, and then another passage um, uh, from, from page 60, the next page, uh, when a repair person is needed, Eliason was vigilant in getting him or her to show up on time to... Um, and to already understand what the problem was, so makes makes perfect sense, right? Um, but but what I the question I have is, you know, at big organizations, employees are usually encouraged to stay in their lane. If my job is customer service and I start receiving at replies from customers or community activists, and they're asking questions about something or making accusations I know nothing about, how do I handle that? You know, big, big organizations are often siloed. And, and I've actually uh, seen research that says most organizations view their marketing department as a perpetual drain on resources. So how does one go about getting the authority to do something like, like get the cable repair guys to show up on time? Um, for, first, if anybody ever asks me to give a public reading of the book, I think I'm going to rent your voice. You, you, you read it far better than I do, and I thank you for that. Um, Second, um, I I can only guess at some of the answer because I am not um, privy to what goes inside uh, upper management decisions at Comcast. I don't think overall uh, I would consider Comcast a company that has figured out all the ways to improve its relationships with, with the public. But I would point out that Frank Eliason uh, went into this undertaking as, if not an upper level, a, a management level guy in customer service. And his job was to see that customers were happier than they had been. Uh, he went over there, yeah, partly for the same reason uh, politicians go to the funerals of, uh, of rich people, because that's where the customers are hanging out. And uh, if there was a Comcast conversation going on, it was usually not flattering to Comcast. So this guy came in, and he started staking his personal brand on it very, very early. 
it was not Comcast we were talking to, it was Frank. It, it, it was this guy from Comcast. Uh, and he said he cares, but that sounds like marketing to a lot of us. So I was among the many who were really skeptical at first. And actually, I probably shot a few uh, bullets across his bow before I got to, to watch him for a while and then speak to him. But for him to make sure that the Comcast uh, delivery truck shows up on time for, for a commitment that he had made in public on Twitter seems like what somebody who is in the lane of customer service should be doing. And if the lane is so narrow that the guy on the phone and the guy in the van can't connect and coordinate, then they have a, a, a very deep problem. Um, and perhaps they did, and perhaps when I wrote the book, I overlooked that that problem was being solved. Um, one of the funny things was that during this whole experience, I had a problem with my uh, cable service, and my uh, I didn't want to make it public. I didn't want to get into my book on that level. So I called the call center, and I got abominable service. And then I DM'd Frank, and it got taken care of very quickly and very well. Shell, let's talk for a minute about Motrin Moms, which is discussed in Chapter 5, Customers Take Control. Um, and there's yeah. been a good deal of conversation already about this incident, which, um, for those of you who don't know, uh, it, it was a, a, about an insulting um, ad, or at least an ad that was seen as an as an insult by a number of mom bloggers who actually took Motrin out to the woodshed um, and uh, humiliated them over this ad, which they found as insensitive. Um, here, here's my question. I mean, I, I can certainly appreciate the importance of acknowledging and emphasizing your customer's position, but shouldn't reason also play a factor? Um, you know, isn't there something to be said for holding one's ground? I, I actually saw the ad and, and personally, in my opinion, I, I think, I believe the reactions were a little overblown. Um, I, you know, I, it certainly warranted a response, and uh, you know that's what you, really what you were advocating, and I agree. Um, but does the response have to be one of agreement? Uh, it's what what seems to me is no. Yeah, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I don't. I, I I really don't think the customer wants um, a kowtowing company to do business with, uh, where people have. Come to dislike. I'm thinking of the beginning uh, uh, of Naked Conversations, which, uh, to paraphrase myself, was something uh, uh, along the lines of we live in an age when most people don't trust modern corporations. And uh, what I said in that, what Robert and I said in that book was that what we really want to be is listened to, and what we cannot tolerate is all these companies that are trying to get into our foreheads, trying to put messages in there, trying to manipulate us, trying to put things in front of our eyes when we're after valuable content. And then they turn around and turn a deaf ear when we have a problem with their products. And throughout my journey in social media, 
the issue of customers using social, I'm sorry, companies using social media as a listening tool has been probably the one central theme. Um, and in the case of Motrin Moms, uh, Jessica Gottlieb, the woman who, who started it all, really mildly admonished them. She didn't go bonkers. She didn't start uh, a vigilant thing. And as I recall, it was kind of a slow news day, uh, slow news weekend day um, on, uh, in, in Twitterville. And the thing uh, took off because a couple of irate moms did very, very clever parodies on the ad and posted them up on YouTube. That's where the attention started going, and that's where the word started spreading on Twitterville, so that the poor VP marketing in Motrin came in uh, on a Monday morning and sounded like Iggins in, in, in uh, the old TV series Magnum, where she took one look and went, oh, my God! and ordered it taken down and apologized a couple of times. And then Jessica Gottlieb, who started off, said, yeah, no big deal. I wasn't that concerned to begin with. I just didn't like the ads. And everybody in that range kind of kind of uh, just kind of said, okay. They uh, doused out their torches, and they went back about whatever it is that they do when they're not assaulting uh, Motrin. Um, the problem was, and what I think I tried to point out in the book is that it illustrated that companies could no longer not listen for the weekend. All Motrin's real crime was, was they weren't paying attention on the weekend. They had a, a social media monitoring program. They were paying attention. They were trying to find an innovative way to get to young moms and they tried to be a little edgy. Um, advertising gets less and less effective, and they tried to try different things. And this edginess uh, didn't offend that many people, but it offended some people. And those people were being heard, and nobody was listening. And the more that nobody was listening, the faster it snowballed. And the only real point of it is that Motrin is going to be a case study in a lot of business schools for a very long time because they took the weekend off. And so if there's a point to be made from that story, it isn't that Motrin did anything that wrong. It's they took a break from listening, and the alarm bell for me to business is you've got to pay attention. The top-rated, longest-running social media communications training program comes to Los Angeles this August 2010. Bring your laptop, log on, and learn the ins and outs of effective social media communications and search engine optimization. Reserve your space by logging on to www.newmediaprbootcamp.com. I interviewed Frank Rose who's a feature writer yeah. for Wired Magazine. He's one of my favorite writers yeah, in the magazine. Very talented guy, very yeah. talented guy. He wrote a case study about the Chevy Tahoe consumer-generated ad campaign that surfaced those damning ads from environmentalists. Um, and while you know it's often hailed uh, in social media circles amongst consultants as an example of uh, you know a, a campaign that, that went wrong, uh, but if you read Frank's article, uh, that actually wasn't the case. And I, I wanted to read a passage from the article here, a couple of paragraphs, and I'll have a link to the full article in the show notes. Um, but here's what he wrote. 
by any objective measure, the Tahoe Apprentice campaign uh, has to be judged as a success. The microsite attracted 629,000 visitors by the time the contest winner Michael Throms from nearby Ann Arbor was announced at the end of April. On average, those visitors spent more than nine minutes on the site, and nearly two-thirds of them went on to Chevy.com for the three weeks running. ChevyApprentice.com funneled more than funneled more people to the Chevy site than either Google or Yahoo. Once there, many requested info or left a cookie trail to a dealer's site. Um, sales took off too, even though it was spring. The SUV pro- uh, purchases generally and SUV purchases generally peak in late fall. Um, since its introduction in January, the new Chevy Tahoe has accounted for more than a quarter of all full-size SUVs sold, outpacing its nearest competitor, the Ford Expedition, two to one. Uh, in March, the month the campaign began, its market share hit nearly 30%. By April, according to the Auto Information uh, Service Edmonds, the average Tahoe was selling in only 46 days, quite a change from a year before when models languished on dealers' uh, lots for close to four months. Um, and so, so I just want to uh, make that point uh, or hammer home that point that you, that you made. Um, it, it, it was about the, the case study uh, from your point of view on Motrin, what they did wrong was they didn't respond, not that they rescinded the ad. Um, I didn't follow the Chevy Tahoe case all that closely, so I'm a little afraid to comment. Um, there, there, there is a little bit from my listening to you read it uh, of an apples and oranges thing going on there because um, the answer to doing the answer to complaints that these ads were environmentally insensitive is not hey we sold more um, that may tactically be very good particularly for a company that is bleeding money the way General Motors was doing at the time we're talking about, and I may still be doing, I'm not quite sure. Um, but nowhere does he mention uh, that General Motors was very slow to bring into the conversation the fact that they as an auto company have been trying for a very long time to do a whole lot of good in terms of of uh, the environmental issues surrounding cars. I say that generally because there's more than just fuel emissions going on there. Um, they didn't bring into the conversation that they're staking their future, a future that probably won't have as many SUVs, on things like the Chevy Volt. So basically what I'm hearing in in what you read is is that um, uh, the response to a uh, ad campaign that from what little I know about it seemed to me to be in pretty poor taste was, hey, we sold cars, and I don't think that's wise in the long run. Um, Okay, well, let's move on here. Um, In Chapter 8, Seeing the Wizard, you write... Uh, The Twitterville business neighborhood seems to me to be a bit like Oz. You see corporate logo images where human faces should be, and the names of recognized brands where tweet authors' names should be. If you recall, um, Dorothy and the Scarecrow and Lion all finally get to uh, the Palace of the Wizard, and there they encounter this 
strong voice talking head that's in the uh, on the stage, and then Toto pulls down the curtain, and you find out that the voice behind the talking head is a rather meek voice belonging to a pretty ordinary guy. Um, and in the end, that ordinary guy really helps them get to what they want to do. Um, we that chapter looks at companies that, that have logo tweets and are trying to speak for companies like Starbucks and uh, Whole Foods and Carl's Jr. in the voice that represents corporations of thousands of people when, in fact, there are some very nice people, I talk to them, who are the little guys behind the curtain that when you talk to them, they're really nice people, the kinds of people you want to do business with, the kinds of people that if they're your employees, you'd want to have represent you. And I think that these companies would be wiser and um, would gain authenticity if they allowed real people who work for them to talk through Twitter and other social media tools to customers out there and talk about not the brand, but their own jobs. And, and I, you know, um, I, I agree with you that, you know, on any, as you write, uh, on any uh, given day, it's better to talk to a human than, say, a Coke bottle. Uh, but here, here's my, here's, here's the, the problem or the, 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 the um, difficulty I think com- communicators might run up against with this. Uh, because organizations are kind of between a rock and a hard place. Um, if they yes, don't, they are. If they don't tweet under their brand name, someone else might. And uh, one of the things that Chris Brogan and Julian Smith uh, write in Trust Agents, and this is a quote, never leave an empty, unused account anywhere because it's as much an indicator of neglect as a dirty desk. So the question is, how can brands protect their interests and allocate resources to sustain a Twitter account, if not through logo or branded accounts? First, again, uh, my... My friends from uh, trust agents have a very nice point. Um, the one reason to leave an, a branded, an abandoned account sometimes is that it stops a squatter from coming in and doing worse with it than abandoning it. Um, as far as the question you say, you begin with companies are between a rock and a hard place. We, we're in a transformational period, and sometimes I get accused of being kind of anti-company, which I'm not. Um, But I am against this this created false image that is frequently called branding that tries to deceive you into thinking the company is something that it's not. Tries to... uh, uh, fool you into thinking that all 50,000 employees of a given company walk in lockstep. And I think that these companies will find that it's in good business if they start figuring out ways that they represent themselves as a collection of real people who are trying hard to do a good job, occasionally screw up, and when they do, they feel badly, like the rest of us do when we screw up, and then they, and then they continue to persist and try to do better in the future. How does this apply to Twitter? Well, in the book, I mentioned a few good cases. Uh, Dell created a very nice system that I like, where uh, it's the name at brand formula, and it's being used by a lot of other people, Richard at Dell, Lionel at Dell, Robert at Dell. Um, and so you get a real human who's at and a company. 
And this means that real human, Richard uh, Richard Binhammer talks about his job in communications. Lionel's job is similar, but as you walk down the line, you'll find there's somebody talking about Linux, there's somebody talking about channels, there's somebody talking about Asian uh, markets, so that they have 150 people talking to thousands of people. Um, at Zappos, you see, you see a retail company that is using a very similar um similar tactic, and the end impression is people who talk to those individuals say, I like Smith at Corp. Dot. And it is the human that comes first, and the human represents the company, and you feel better about the company. You know, it, it, it's in the, in the PC wars. Dell seems to have lost HP in every single thing except social media. And the social media... Dell, who uses this name at Brand Tactic, is really kicking butt, and it, you know, it doesn't mean they're going to win the war, but it means they're in a much better position, and their strong point is at a lower cost than the national advertising campaign. So this is a tough one. This is really tough. But if you go into a place where the real magic is the human interaction, and you come in as a piece of artwork and you give that artwork a voice that belongs to someone who may or may not stay with the company, then you really are not humanizing your brand. And part of the anthem that I've been singing for five years is it's time to humanize your brands. It seems to me that much of the friction you identify stems from the tension between objective and subjective information. And, and I wonder, if a branded account was governed by some sort of code of ethics that said employees may only tweet objective information under the branded account, and that tweets expressing opinion had to be personal accounts, could something like that work? Would that be interesting? Would you go there and say, wow, this is interesting that this... What would depend? Like, for example, you think of like Dell Outlet? You know, Dell Outlet, yeah. you know, your expectations are that you're going to see clearance items there. And you're not going to want to have the conversation there, but still, you know, getting the clearance information could be valuable. Or I could think of other uh, um, P, uh, organizations that sell things wanting to clear excess inventory, maybe not having a conversation through that channel, but just distributing raw data or FEMA, you know, distributing information about disasters. And then if you want to have the conversation, you could actually pair up with someone at FEMA who's so-and-so at FEMA and have that conversation because you wouldn't want to talk to the FEMA logo. You raise an excellent point right there. Um, there are times when, when, when that uh, makes sense. Uh, but let's go back to FEMA and let's make it Joe at FEMA. And Joe's job is to give you information that, that FEMA is uh, holding forward. But can't people come and ask questions, and is he expected to know all the answers? And why can't he be Joe at FEMA, the guy I trust? And when he retires or gets fired or whatever, can't, why can't he become Betty? I'm using old-fashioned names, I know, but Betty at FEMA, um, and so on. What is the advantage of trying to create the illusion that something inanimate is talking and that intelligent people really prefer to have conversations with inanimate objects rather than living, breathing humans? Well, okay, so here's here's my my answer to that. I mean, you know, at some okay. organizations, uh, you know, there are departments that are concerned with 
sustaining um, the assets of an organization, like HR or legal departments. I mean, they're thinking about protecting the organization and uh, trying to make sure that you know imp- that that employees don't benefit at the expense of the organization. And I could see the argument made um, that um, if you didn't have the branded account then, you know, how does the brand preserve followers when the people move on? The company, you're asking very good questions that take a very long time to answer, and when I'm on audio, I usually try to be a little uh, less long-winded. Very good question. The issue is... What's the purpose of social media? Let's take it beyond Twitter. Let's just say social media. Is it to broadcast message? Is it for a brand extension? Is it for channel marketing? Or is it more like a telephone where conversations are held? Well, a telephone is used for all of the above. Yes, it is. How, how, much, how, much, how much do you enjoy getting a call at 6 p.m. asking you uh, to buy something you don't want to buy from a person you don't want to know? What is your initial response? Well, for interruption marketing, I'm going to be incensed, but there are other forms of marketing, like just relationship building. Let's stay right there for a minute. Okay. Um, many years ago, I worked, I, I did PR for MCI, and they had a program called Friends and Family. And Friends and Family essentially spam phone called millions of people between the hours of 6 and 7.30 in their time zones every night. And they did this because that's when people were sitting down to a meal, and they found that that was the highest time they get response. It was absolutely interruption marketing. And one day I told my client that, you know, just about everybody I know absolutely hates the friends and family program. And the guy looked at me like I was the dumbest guy on earth and said, I don't care. Well, I'm cleaning up his language. He said something about a flying duck or something. I forgot exactly what. He said, we have a 1.5% response to these calls. And if the other 98.5% people hate us, I don't care. Well, those companies, I don't think, are going to retain the type of employees that I want to have retained in companies that I do business with. And that headspace is one that, that has led to a lot of problems. And the type of defenses you're offering, I would maintain, uh, tend to be the legacy of this is what we want. Um, what companies seem to forget is that they are as dependent upon their customers as the customers depend upon them. As a matter of fact, in an open marketplace, perhaps they're more dependent upon their customers than the customers are uh, dependent upon them. And yes, they're there to make a living. And to make a living, they should remember certain very subjective things that happy customers in the long run will do you better. Take, for example, what happened to customer support. In the 90s, smart business people, um, counting the beans, said, gee, we should measure support by how many calls per hour these guys can take. So the purpose of these support people will not be to solve problems. It will be to turn them over because talking to customers costs us money. We don't want to do that. Uh, That carried into dot-com when Yahoo's uh, founder referred to its customers as sticky eyeballs. I don't know about you, but I like to see more of a human than a a sticky eyeball, which is kind of a gory uh, scenario. So now, 
we get to a point when a lot of customers were forming into organizations and complaining, and they're saying we can't afford to do it elsewise. This is how we have to do it because the economy say that we just can't make any money if we're nice to customers, if we fix the software problems. Then lo and behold comes social media, which makes it effective, efficient, and easy to solve customers' problems by having conversations with them. And if HR says, well, this isn't that company's interest, as the executive of that company, I would reevaluate the HR department's thinking. Yeah, and I think you know that's a reasonable argument. I think most people would agree with that. I think the, the question comes into if the organization is going to pay employees to, to – um, let, let's say the organization accepts that customer service is the new PR, that what they're going to do is help people in full view of everyone else, and in so doing, um, via Twitter, uh, are going to have more happy customers. Uh, but um, they want to try to uh, retain – uh, the followers that they have that they build up as a result of practicing customer service, you know, via this account like Comcast cares, um, you know, it, it, the good example that I've seen, um, and it's not just cause I've done some work with them but I, and I actually wasn't involved in this decision. Uh, but if you look at Toyota, Toyota's, um, uh, Twitter account, what they've done is they've, re- they, they do tweet at a branded account, Toyota with a logo image, but what they've done is they've replaced the JPEG on the background plate of their homepage. And in the left-hand column, they have a column of all the different people who tweet from that account and their, and their personal Twitter accounts as well. And they sign their tweets at the branded account so that um, you know, they can build some inertia and develop momentum under the branded account. And then if people want to get into one-on-ones back and forth with subject matter experts on a particular area, they can do that as well. They can take that sort of, you know, offline and into a breakout room, so to speak. And uh, I don't know, I, just, I think it's kind of a, a good way to go. It makes sense to me. Next question. I'm, I'm going to lead you a little bit on this one. Um, uh, as a result of the fact that it's nearly impossible to keep secrets or spin the truth when the world is online 24-7 using social media to keep us honest... Uh, business communications are, I think, are becoming more about what we do and less about what we say. Would you agree? Yes. Okay, in Twitterville... That's a leading question at all. I don't even know how to expand that. In Twitterville, you you write about uh, Andrew Sinkov, who handles um, marketing for Evernote and who advocates a sort of one-way intimacy Twitter strategy. Um, Yep. uh, Here's the question. Isn't the product itself or the impression people have about it more important than the organization's social media communication strategy? Good question. My answer, believe it or not, is yep. Uh, Best example I know is a much bigger company. It's Apple. Uh, Apple Computer. I've written at least 20 times the phrase, Apple, love the products, hate the company. And every time I do, I get all kinds of people agreeing with me. Is a company that really doesn't uh, disclose a whole lot. They don't participate in social media. When uh, the individual who is the icon for the company goes through a life-threatening uh, surgery, they don't disclose it to shareholders in a publicly traded company. Um, and when you have something broken and you have to wait for an appointment to see somebody called a genius, you get some sense of the arrogance of the company. At the same time, they make consistently excellent products. 
And if all you do is provide superior products and services to the marketplace, and all you have in retail are people who are as qualified as the employees of every Apple store I've ever been in, then you don't need social media so much. The problem is the sooner or later things break. And when they do, all the arrogance you built up when everything was hunky-dory leaves you with very few chips to screw up. Dell is an example of this. Dell was in a number one position. It was rock and roll, and everything was doing great. But it got into a downward spiral price war with a larger company that had deeper pockets and bigger resources. It lost the leadership position. It got loyal customers like me to hate them for a while. Um, I still thank them for driving me into a Macintosh, which I'll never leave now. But I love that company, and I don't love Apple. And yet, if this other company, Dell, came up with a product that satisfied me as much with, with my as my iPhone does, as my Mac does, as so on does, I would switch in a minute. Uh, we got um, we got started on particularly this. if they used particularly if they didn't have a partner like AT and T, which again is a company that right now is doing rather well because they hooked up with a brilliant product rather than provided superior service at a reasonable price. On the Record Online is the official podcast of the Public Relations Society of America International Conference. To hear in-depth one-on-one interviews with PRSA conference keynoters, presenters, and panelists, search keyword PRSA on our show blog at ontherecordpodcast.com. Join us October 16th through 19th in Washington, D.C. for the PRSA 2010 International Conference. I got started on this interview today 10 minutes late because we had been communicating via Twitter and you know, lo and behold, Twitter was down today. Um, are you concerned that Twitter is a single point of failure? Is a single what? I didn't hear you. A single point of failure. A single point of uh, failure. No. Um, I think Twitter is proof of a new form of communications that people love. Um, the company may fail, but microblogging, which is a terrible name, um, is something that, that, that people love to do and a growing number of people will continue to do that will infiltrate into everyday lives like email and telephone conversations. I have no doubt for that. Um, I have great hopes for Twitter. Uh, I know two of the three founders. Um, I obviously researched the company pretty thoroughly. Um, I respect them. I respect the money behind them, which for me is where I frequently get suspicious. Um, and I think that the company's biggest problem is it can't stop being popular long enough to get in there and fix its basic framework well enough to make it bulletproof from these attacks, which I'm guessing happened today, to make it bulletproof from overindulgence. company is, unlike AT&T, smart enough not to tell its customers don't use it for a while. Um, and I am hopeful that 
they'll get in front of their problems. If not, something will come along where we usually say, wow, that is better, and we'll go there. And first, the early adopters will run over there and they'll shout, hey, better! And then slowly, when enough of my friends are over there, I'll start using both. And then very slowly, I'll discover I don't use Twitter anymore. I use the new one. And the guys at Twitter know that. They're in a race for time to make the product work well enough that this doesn't happen anymore. When they do that, when it's bulletproof, when IBM and Comcast and Dell and so many other companies, big and small, can count on them, then they can start charging money. What's taking them so long to charge money is the unreliability of the product. So I'm sure they take it seriously. Show, um, I loved the book Twitterville. I was riveted. I was I was upset when it was over because I enjoyed it so much. I, I think of all the books I've read about social media, it's it's the best one, I gotta say. You kept it interesting, you. you put stories in there. I mean I, 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 I'm just, I, it's, it is definitely, if, if you're a listener of this podcast, if you like this podcast, if you like the stuff I cover, you have to buy this book. It is phenomenal. Um, but the one thing about the book that kind of threw me off is, you know, y- you have these little, you know, explanations and sections of chapters with a little sub headline. And at the end, you'll put these little tweets in there. And uh, in the, I, I would imagine the tweets are supposed to be commentary on the preceding chapter, right? The tweets that were inserted there were not my idea, and in the interest of transparency and having relationships with my publisher, I'd rather not go any deeper. Okay. So, because the thing is, when I read them, I felt stupid. I was like, oh, I don't get it. What? Maybe I missed something. Is this a non sequitur? What is it? And it, it threw me off. But I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled with, <laughs> with your response on that. because I, I, I wrote the words. Okay. Got it. Got and, it. And at the same time, I, at the same time, I didn't have much say on the cover, which I thought was brilliant. So it, it's any relationship is multifaceted. Um, there were some arrangement issues and uh, those tweets that, that I didn't think hurt the book badly, but I would have voted no if I had the final say. Um, but um, overall, Portfolio is a great publisher. Uh, I think that book cover jumps off a shelf, and I, I even love the simple light size of the book. And, and those are publisher decisions. They were not mine. Well, listen, you, you, you've got a fan in me, so tell me about your next book. Ah, uh, thank you. <laughs> uh, just announced it this week. It's called The Living uh, Enterprise. It's about uh, one of the great untold stories, which is SAP. Um, they have created uh, an ecosystem, which, of course, every large company has. But they treat theirs more like a living biological uh, ecosystem than an org chart with a lot of dotted lines on it. Um, so, basically, they... I'm co-authoring with Zia Yusuf and uh, Mark Yolton. Zia's until recently ran ecosystems there. Mark is still there, and he runs communities. Um, And we're collaborating to tell the story in my user-driven style about this is what's happened for companies that are part of this. This is why it's different. This is why it's special. And this is why your medium and large-sized company should look at what they did 
and uh, turn your prism around a little bit and approach social media this way because guess what? They've created an ecosystem that, that Ray Wang and Altimeter Group uh, estimates to be worth about $80 billion. And I don't have the drill down yet. I'm waiting to get more details on what he's talking about. But that shows that social media programs... Uh, can uh, be a, be an accelerant for making money and doing business, and that dispels the the the, the great argument that I've been hearing for five years about this is all a diversion from the real stuff at hand, which is about making money. Well, no, it isn't. This is a way of making money faster and easier. And in learning that you depend upon the other members of your business environment as much as they depend upon yours. We've been talking to Shell Israel. His book is Twitterville. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Eric, it's been a real pleasure. You asked some of the best questions that I get. I'm very impressed. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. On the Record Online is hosted by Eric Schwartzman, an independent online communications consultant whose clients include the U.S. Department of State, the United States Marine Corps, the U.S. Embassy of Greece, the Government of Singapore, Johnson & Johnson, Toyota, Southern California Edison, the Environmental Defense Fund, and dozens of small to medium-sized organizations. For information about engaging Eric Schwartzman as a speaker, social media trainer, or digital strategist, visit www.ericschwartzman.com or send email to eric at ericschwartzman.com.